So we can read um, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 to 26. If you're following in the Pew Bibles, it starts on page 285. But it'll be up on the screen as well. There it goes. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. So now go... Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. And then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel, and there he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, "Uh, So what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? And what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Saul, uh, Samuel said to Saul, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. And Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, 
go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. And now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And this is the word of the Lord. Do you ever feel like you don't want to turn on the news on the telly or the bad news as I often call it Uh, maybe like me you you just don't want any more bad news about war suffering, corruption and so on well in some ways I wouldn't blame you if you felt a bit like that about all the battles and killing in this section of the Bible and the sad decline of Saul as king But I do hope to show you tonight that it's worth looking at these parts of the Bible from hundreds of years ago and that they can be really helpful and even comforting to us today. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, I pray you'll take my small words and make them big and use them for the glory of your great name. King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. So this isn't a very cheerful period in Israel's history, is it? And I I think we're greatly blessed by God that currently we're not under direct violent threat by our neighbours in Europe as we were in the First and Second World Wars and in much of our early history when France and Spain often threatened us, for example. And you can see all the surrounding nations around Saul's kingdom here on the map. Is that big enough? I might have to tell you, right, okay, well, if you leave the map up, I'll tell you where it is, all right? But they're surrounded, there's the Amalekites, and the Ammonites, the Philistines, and I think the Kenites probably lived among the Amalekites. They're the main ones mentioned in these chapters, 12 to 15, and they're right next to surrounding the Israelites. And as it, as it said in the reading, the Kenites are more friendly towards Israel, had helped them when they were traveling, worn out and exhausted 
when they escaped from slavery in Egypt, uh, led out by God. So the Kenites helped them at that stage, whereas, as we'll hear, the Amalekites didn't. They did the opposite. But this is the context in which the Israelites find themselves. This is also the context in which the God of love, who loves peace, not war, has to operate too. Because things, as we know, have gone seriously wrong in the world as the human race tends to want to do its own thing rather than do things God's way. And God ultimately wants peace for all and wants us who try to follow him to be peacemakers and people who live in a good way and in relationship with their creator God and their, relation, and their neighbours, in good relationship with God and our neighbours, helping our neighbours. And you've got Revelation 21, which I'm sure a lot of you know well, but shows us this symbolic picture when everything's sorts out, sorted out, something of God's ultimate will, when there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and there's peace, not war, and there's no suffering. John, who had the vision, writes that I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. There will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That's the ultimate will of God. But what long way we are here in these words from 1 Samuel, from those peaceful biblical pictures in Revelation, when we read about this period in Israel and our history too in various wars. And the people of Israel, with Saul as their king, had to try and serve God in a literal front line of battle very often. And the LICC often call our daily lives a front line, but this literally was a front line of battle. They borrowed that phrase from, from war imagery, I suppose, the LICC. So they're in this front line. They're under threat from the surrounding nations, so they had to fight for survival or be overcome. And obviously this is far from the way God ultimately wants things to be, but that's the way it is. And it's often very hard to see how God works out his will, his purposes of love in this situation, and also maybe in our front lines today. That is what we do for most of the week. I don't know what you're going through, but you know I know things can get very messy, very unclear, they can get very confused. Maybe this illustration will help you. On the right of the picture, there's the bird and the, uh, the tree. And it's a tapestry. And, and it's a clear, lovely picture. You can see the beauty of it. You can see the bird and the trees. But if you look at the back of the tap- tapestry on the left, it looks a bit confused, messy, and unclear. There's no clear picture there. And life in our front lines can often seem to us like the back of that tapestry, can't it? Things can get very messy, unclear and confused. It might seem to us that life is like the back of the tapestry sometimes and not the front. 
But from God's point of view, God's outside time, he can see the whole picture. He can see the front. He can see the beauty of the front. He can see how he's going to work out his beautiful plans in history. Whereas we might find it harder to see from our perspective, which is often like, as I said, like the back of that tapestry. And I think this is is a context here in which Saul is king, and although Samuel said there shouldn't really be a king at all, the people asked for a king, they got Saul, because God is our only king. God is our ultimate king. There is no other king, really. But it's very messy and confused and unclear often in these words we read tonight. So Saul, as, as we heard uh, last week, he started well. In chapter 10, we heard how he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied and he changed and he rescued the people of Jabesh. Now that's on the top right, the northeast of the kingdom, right? Jabesh. So it's top right. I can just see it. Jabesh Gilead, it's up there on the right, okay? In, and the kingdom is, is bounded by red. So he went up there and he defeated the Ammonites. And God helped Saul through his Holy Spirit in his literal front line. Saul leaned on God and God helped him. And that's a reminder to me, and hopefully to you, of that simple truth that all we need, we all need God's help in our daily front lines, however messy they may sometimes be, and God gives us his Holy Spirit to guide us and help us if we follow Jesus. And he empowers us and helps us and guides us in those front lines. So when Saul was filled with the Spirit, when he was listening to God, he did well. He won the battle. But sadly, after this, things start to go wrong as Saul drifts away from God. And in chapter 13, we can read how Saul starts to lose trust in God, speaking to him through Samuel. Samuel says to Saul, uh, in 1 Samuel uh, 10, 8, Samuel said to Saul, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and I'll surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days. You must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what to do. You must wait seven days. So Samuel had told Saul to go to Gilgal, which he did, as you heard in the reading. That's above the Dead Sea on the map. The Dead Sea is the blue bit, and it's at the top. That's Gilgal. And um, Samuel promised to come after seven days and sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings as Samuel was a priest. And that was the priest's job. The Philistines were gathering for a battle at Mich- Michmash. I'm not quite... Is this Mishmash? Does anyone know? It says Michmash. I don't quite know, anyway. Anyway, they gathered there in the middle of the left, to the left of Gilgal on the map, all right? And Saul did go to Gilgal, but then he became scared and impatient and sacrificed the offerings to try and encourage maybe his panicking soldiers instead of waiting for Samuel, who did come late on the seventh day, it's implied. So Saul didn't trust God that Samuel would come, so he resorts to this religious ritual of sacrifice which actually means wholeheartedly giving yourself to God when he didn't wholeheartedly give himself to God. He shouldn't have done it because he wasn't a priest like Samuel and he didn't bother to pray. There's no mention of him praying at all, asking God's guidance. 
So Saul didn't bother to pray to God, even after having experienced the Holy Spirit filling him and success in that battle, he didn't pray and he didn't wait for help to come to God via Samuel. There's another story linked with war, um, which might help us here. Corrie ten Boom, if you're, if you're an older person like me, you'll probably know this, but she was a person who was put in concentration camp along with her family for putting up Jews in their family house and helping them to escape from the Nazis in the Second World War. And she said that she'd often found God worked at the last minute, just when we need something. And in her book, Hiding Place, which tells of their experiences, which I'd recommend to you, she describes how her father in particular and her family were under constant threat of being discovered, uh, hiding the, the Jewish people in their house. And then they knew they'd be taken to a concentration camp, tortured or whatever, and then killed, starved, you know. And so she writes this as a child, so I'll, I'll read her words. She says, At last we heard father's footsteps winding up the stairs. It was the best moment in every day when he came back to tuck us in. We never fell asleep until he'd arranged the blankets in his special way, laid his hand for a moment on each head. Then we tried not to move even a toe. But that night, as he stepped through the door, I burst into tears. I need you, I sobbed. You can't die, you can't. And Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corrie, he began gently, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? I sniffed a few times, considering this. Why, just before we get on the train. Exactly. And our wise Father in heaven knows when you're going to need things too. Don't run ahead of him, Corrie. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. Don't run ahead of him, Corrie. God does things just in time. And to be honest, with this sermon, I very much experienced that. He gave, hopefully I've got the right sermon, he gave it me just in time. I had to wait quite a long time. But Saul hadn't learnt this lesson about trusting God that Corrie Thames Boom's father had learnt. Saul ran ahead of God. God often does leave things to the last minute. He knows what he's doing though. But then he often helps us to cope in very, very tough situations, which if you read the book, you'll see what they went through. So next we go to chapter 15, which is what we've heard this evening. And here we find that Saul didn't carry out God's will to completely destroy the Amalekites, as they, uh, the Amalekites had attacked Israel previously, over a period of about 400 years actually. And this is what Samuel said to Saul. I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king, Saul, over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, I know that must sound very, very harsh to us at first reading. It, it hits you hard. You know, this is total destruction. But I believe 
that part of the way God works in the world is to limit evil to some degree. If evil wasn't limited to some degree, then the world would be even in a worse state than it is now, I believe. I mean, imagine if Hitler hadn't been defeated in the Second World War. What would things be like now? I don't like to think about it, really. And this battle to destroy the Amalekites that Saul is told by God to carry out is a judgment from God on the terrible things the Amalekites have done over the 400 years. And particularly what they did, they attacked the weak and vulnerable women and children at the tail end, the rear of the people escaping slavery in Egypt. And I just noticed when the reading was being read again that it's interesting that the, the only people killed by Saul and his men, the only animals killed, were the weak and the vulnerable animals. They went for them in the same way the Amalekites went earlier. So I just noticed that as as it was being read. So it's a judgment from God. And, And the record from Deuteronomy about them coming out from slavery in Egypt, being saved by God... Deuteronomy 25 tells us, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, you know, the weak are obviously lagging behind, the disabled, the children, the women. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land your Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So it's in response to this that Saul is told to completely destroy them and their animals. And Saul doesn't seem to have any problem with killing people, to be honest. But he did spare the king and he spared the best animals. Then he comes up with these excuses. And Saul profits from the battle rather than carry out what God wanted to protect future generations of people from the Amalekites. Because Saul didn't carry out God's command, the Amalekites continued to attack Israel for another generation. Now in a few weeks, we're going to have a a discussion on open to question, which is something we do regularly here in the evening. In the next few weeks, we're going to have a discussion on war. And we're also coming to a period where we're going to look at remembrance in November. And we'll be able to go into things in a bit more detail around these these really difficult ethical issues, how God views war and so on. So please do come along to that um, if you'd like to. But I'd just like to make a couple of quick points about the way God's limiting of evil in the world seems to work to me. And the first thing is, I, I, I think we're made in the image of God And I think we all have an inbuilt sense of a need for justice in the world. And to work for justice, actually, too. That's what we should be doing. And I think that's a good thing that God has put in us. And a friend of mine, I'm a cyclist, and often feel very vulnerable on the roads. And a friend of mine, who I regarded as my cycling dad, was killed just over a year ago by a driver who was uh, on drugs and drunk in Mallorca. And he hit him from behind. He was killed instantly. Now, I say to myself, should the driver of that car just be let off from killing my friend? Is it, is it love-loving to let someone off when they kill someone? 
And I personally feel some form of justice needs to be done. And, and, and that person should be punished appropriately and encouraged to change their behaviour so they don't kill any more people by their, their behaviour. Ideally, I'd hope they'd become a Christian. I'd hope they'd get help if they've got addiction problems. But I think there's some justice has to be done. That's how I feel about it. I don't know how you'd feel about it if that happened to your friend. And I believe God, in his wisdom and his love, is the perfect judge and will see justice done eventually for us all. He, fa- he faces us with our failings. Yes, we've confessed our sins earlier. Most of all, we, we tend to ignore God, and that's our biggest failing. And we ignore his way of love too often. Just as Samuel faced Saul here in this passage with his failings and lack of commitment to the God who made him. And maybe a way of understanding God's judgment is to look at the fall of Jerusalem prophesied by Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate king who comes later, who God himself comes in human form. God incarnate, God made visible. You look at Jesus, you can see what God is like. Maybe we can look how God in Jesus reacts to judgment. And I'm thinking of the fall of Jerusalem here and that period in history. It was a terrible thing that happened then. Sorry, I know this is heavy. I understand it's heavy, but I just think we've got to look at this. So Luke 19, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. They'll encircle you, they'll hem you in on every side. You can almost feel him crying as he says it. They will dash you to the ground, and you and your children within your walls, they'll not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, and Jesus is God coming to them. So Jesus is suggesting this awful event which happened in AD 70, there was the siege and fall of Jerusalem, is a judgment from God, and he says because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, didn't recognize I'm God and I came to you. Jesus is saying to the people of Jerusalem, I'm God, I've come to save you, to give you peace, I'm your king. But many people didn't recognize this, they didn't follow him. But also, as Jesus came to Jerusalem, hailed as the Messiah king, he, he wept over that judgment he knew was coming. He, he wept over it. And as he approached Jerusalem, he wept over it. I think this is a good illustration of God's judgment, because God is love. God is the source of all love. If we ignore him, we do so at our peril, but God does not want it to get to the point of judgment for us. He wants us to repent, confess, make him the center of our lives with his agenda of love in the center of our being so that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves and as he loves us. And if the inhabitants of Jerusalem had done that, then maybe as with Nineveh, which we look back, if you remember Jonah, when we looked at Jonah, Jonah got annoyed because God relented and didn't destroy the people of Nineveh. As with Nineveh, God would have relented and the destruction maybe wouldn't have happened, I don't know. But God is patient and wants to give people time to respond to his love. So he gave the people of Jerusalem 40 years, roughly speaking, to turn to him. And in Saul's situation, God had given the Amalekites 400 years to change their ways, but they didn't. So when Samuel arrives, he criticizes Saul for keeping the best animals 
and the king of the Amalekites alive. And then Saul starts with his excuses. He says, oh, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag, their king. Oh, the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Because Saul missed the point that God knows best, and we should do what he wants. And therefore, simple obedience to God is all that's needed, not sacrifices or religious rituals. It's not complicated. As the old hymn goes, pray and obey. And if you want to hear it sung, Jane did attempt to sing it to me, Jane, my wife. She attempted to sing this to me only yesterday, and it was a beautiful sound. But it's an old hymn, pray and obey, okay? It's dead simple. And the wonderful thing, and I'm trying to cheer you up a bit now, The wonderful thing we can pick out of this sad story of Saul's moving away from God and being rejected as king is that God made something beautiful from this tangled mess. Even though the Israelites shouldn't have asked for a king, as God was their king, God became flesh eventually and showed himself the true king in Jesus. Jesus, the king of kings, came and sorted everything out for us on the cross for us. Jesus is the ultimate king who served us. This is not like kings who have ever been before or since. He served us, who gave himself as a sacrifice. This is what God does. He serves us so we could be set free, just as the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt. So, to put that slide up again, I hope that even in the messy reality of Saul's battles and failures, we can be encouraged in our front lines, whatever we're facing this week. At first, Saul did rely on God's Spirit to help him. And that's a reminder of the simple truth that we all need God's help in our daily front lines. However messy they may sometimes be, we might not quite know what to do, but God gives us his Holy Spirit to help us. He doesn't leave us to get on with it on our own. And we've got the Bible to guide us. The Spirit brings the Bible to life for us. So if we follow Jesus, he will guide us and empower us through his Spirit living in us. And he helps us in those challenges that we all face. All we have to do is what Saul did in the first place. To pray, admit we go wrong, ask God to fill us with his Spirit, his loving and guiding Spirit, so that we can face every day. And also another little lesson is to not be impatient as Saul was. Don't give up trusting God. He does help us. Often God will act at the last minute, just in time, to help us with whatever messy situation we face in our front line. Don't run ahead of God. Don't try and be God yourself. Remember the story of Corrie Ten Boom's father about him giving her the ticket for the train just before they got on. God is our Father, and he often gives us what we need just at the last minute, just in time. And finally, I I well understand, because I've been grappling with this for two weeks, this, this passage, that some of you may have been looking at what you've heard tonight, may have stirred you up, all sorts of feelings in you. And I understand it's hard going. I understand it's tough. You may have questions about what I've said, please do come and talk to me about it. Talk to any of the leadership team, Neil and, and Eddie and uh, Chris, 
Victoria, whoever's around afterwards, if you want, get people to pray with you. You may have questions about what I've said, and maybe particularly about how God's judgment works. But do remember Jesus crying over what he knew would happen to Jerusalem. God cries. He doesn't want it to be this way. Maybe that shows us something of how God approaches judgment. And I said, if you want to discuss anything with any of us, please do chat to us. Thank you for listening.